Well, friends, please turn with me to uh, the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We recently began a new series in um, this book. We just finished uh, the opening greeting in verses 1 and 2, where we saw Peter uh, call Christians uh, elect exiles of the dispersion. And we thought about that in terms of being uh, strangers in the eyes of the world, because we live wherever we are found in the world as resident aliens, citizens of another kingdom altogether. Christians are scattered throughout the world so that the word of God can be spread among the nations. And in relation to God, we are a special people, not because of anything in us or anything we've done, but according to the grace of God by which we have been chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. And that means whatever trials Christians are called to face in this life, they do so secure in the grip of God's love and grace for his people. Now, if you take a look at at 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, you'll notice that verses 3 through 12 are a a block of, of Peter's teaching. Actually, in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 are one long sentence. Verse 3 through 12 are one sentence in Greek, but it breaks down neatly into three uh, sections. First is verses 3 through 5, then verses 6 through 9, then verses 10 through 12. In verses 3 through 5, Peter praises God for certain gospel privileges. And then in verses 6 through 9, Peter applies those gospel privileges to Christians who are facing various sore trials. And then in verses 10 through 12, he reminds them that their salvation was the plan of God all along, and it was spoken of beforehand by the prophets. Now today, we're going to focus on verses 3 through 5, where Peter praises God the Father who's caused us to be born again to a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and a secure salvation. So let's go ahead and read uh, God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think it's safe to say that everyone wants to live with hope and everyone wants to have a place to call home. Uh, Hopelessness and homelessness are things that we inherently try to avoid. 
Now, if we are going to appreciate the way Peter applies the gospel to these Christians who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, then we need to understand that this is an audience where many of them have likely been um, driven out of Rome and scattered throughout the Roman Empire, meaning that in a first century context, they have lost everything. They've been disinherited. Right? When you, in the first century, when your inheritance was tied to land and home, to lose one's home was virtually to lose everything. And so from, from a this-worldly perspective, Peter is writing to a, a, a people who are a hopeless and homeless bunch. But Peter, as you're going to see, he gives them a different perspective that is informed by the gospel. He tells them that by the mercy of God, through Jesus, they have been born anew to a living hope and an inheritance that can never, ever be lost. And friends, what was true for them is equally true for us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus today. So this passage is saying to us that by the mercy of God the Father, we have new life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, resulting in a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and a secure salvation. And friends, this is good news. This is good news for people who struggle with discouragements in this life, who face various trials on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good news for people who have at times been tempted to despair, who have perhaps little to no earthly inheritance. Whatever our lot, Peter is saying, as Christians, we've been born anew to a living hope, to an imperishable inheritance, and to a secure salvation that is ready to be revealed. So this morning, all I want to do is, is walk through these verses to see how Peter applies these gospel privileges and what it means for us. So notice, first of all, in verse 3, the way Peter begins. He begins with doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that form of praise, blessed be God, was a very common and well-known form of, of Jewish praise. So think about this and notice what Peter is doing. He's using a Jewish form of praise, but he's saying that the one God, you know, the God who is confessed in the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That one God, the God who is one, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to speak of Jesus Christ as Lord is to speak of him in divine terms. It's to speak of him as one with God the Father. And so the one God of Israel is God the Father, God the Son, and as we learn elsewhere in Scripture, God the Holy Spirit. I think another thing we need to appreciate at the outset of this letter is the significance 
of the Christian confession, Lord Jesus Christ. If you wanted to boil it down and ask, what did the church confess? They confessed, Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what got them in a lot of trouble with both Jews and Gentiles. Trouble with the Jews because they understood perfectly well what was being confessed, that Jesus Christ is none other than Yahweh, the great I Am, enfleshed. Trouble with the Gentiles as well, though, because uh, confessing Jesus as Lord undercut the lordly claims of the emperor and the imperial cult that was so prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. What was the confession? It was Caesar is Lord. And so confessing Jesus is Lord immediately set them apart from the idol worship that pervaded everyday life in and throughout the Roman Empire. It distinguished them, their profession, Jesus Christ is Lord. It distinguished them as foreigners living in their own communities. And we need to understand, friends, that confessing Lord Jesus Christ today and really living in line with the reality of that confession is going to result in the same thing for Christians today. It will inevitably set you apart from the prevailing ideologies and values of the society in which we live. Now let's come back to the main thread of Peter's thinking here. Notice notice why Peter begins in praise. What it is that prompts this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So he praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has become our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? By, by means of a new birth, we have been introduced into the family of God and made his children. We need to understand the significance of this because the Bible is clear that after the fall, no one is born naturally as a, as a daughter or son of God. We are instead, what does Paul say? We are by nature children of wrath. John says we, we can't even see the kingdom of God Because the first life and all subsequent life thereafter has been laid hold of by the powers of sin and death. And to be brought out of that state into another, the Bible says, we need nothing less than to be born anew. To be born all over again. The problem with that is, we can't cause ourselves to be born again, can we? Any more than we caused ourselves to be conceived and, and eventually born forth from our mother's womb. This is, that's the point. We can't renovate our nature. But the Bible says we must be born again. And so you see what Peter is doing. Once again, he's drawing attention to the gracious priority and the power of God in salvation. Remember, he's, he's already said in his introduction, his greeting, that Christians are those who have been chosen by God 
And we said, that doesn't mean that God has chosen his people because he saw that they would choose him. And so he placed his stamp of approval on their choice and chose them. No, no. He, he chose to have a people for himself, knowing full well that they would never choose him at all. And now he's saying, and we can't cause ourselves to be born again. He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, it's all God's merciful doing. Isn't that exactly what Peter says? If you just look at the language, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. Born anew so that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would be our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Born anew into the family of God and it is all the Father's merciful gift. So dear friends, please please don't ever think of the Father as, as one who, who stands back aloof, detached, uh, reluctant to save, Someone who says to you, let's, let's see you prove yourself first. Let's see you get your act together. And then we'll, we'll talk about the, the status of being my child. Don't think of him as someone who expects you to take the first step before he is willing to bestow new life. Because that is not at all what the father is like. And that is not at all how salvation works. Instead, he abounds in mercy towards us. When we were in a condition of total inability, utterly helpless, Peter says, he caused us to be born anew. And notice he caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's Peter saying there? He is saying that the new life that we enjoy as Christians is only possible because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What's the significance of that? The new life that we enjoy is his life. The life of Christ. The life of the age to come. Broken in already into this world of decay and death. Resurrection life in Jesus Christ overcoming our death as we share in his life. You see, the Father causes us to be born anew. And when he's doing this, when he acts in this way, he's not doling out some abstraction to us. He is uniting you to Jesus, the living one. And so we confess Jesus Christ is our life. But the imagery that John uses of the vine and the branches. It's only as the branches are grafted into the vine. And, and life flows from the vine. Sap, life-giving sap flows from the vine into the branches. That the branches have life and bring forth fruit. Because he lives, we live also. And his life is the guarantee of ours. Now, before we, we look at the results of this new birth that Peter um, mentions, I think we need to appreciate 
And I think this is an aspect of you know, the, the, the idea of regeneration or being born anew that perhaps we, we don't give very much attention to. I think we need to appreciate the decisiveness of new birth for Christians. Okay, it, it is hard to imagine, isn't it, a more sweeping concept than being born again. Think about it. When you were born, what happened? In your birth, you, you were given an ethnicity, citizenship in a particular country. In many ways, your socioeconomic status was established. Certain biological potentialities were determined by your parents. In a sense, the course of your whole life was established at your birth. So think about this. The significance of being born again. To be a Christian means you've been born anew so that you have a new identity, a new citizenship that redefines your relationship with the world. This gospel reality is decisive, determining our identity as children of the Father who are now being conformed to the image of the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you see, for Peter, being born again is a reality that actually is meant to completely reorder our outlook and change how we live. It produces a new way of looking at the world, a new way of life, a new way of processing and interpreting trials that we face. Peter is writing here to suffering Christians who have been completely disinherited and who are being slandered on account of their faith in Christ. So you see, from a purely this-worldly point of view, such an experience could understandably cast a big cloud of despair over someone's life, couldn't it? But Peter insists that their experience of trials needs to actually be interpreted from a totally different way of thinking that originates from their new birth. They've been born anew to a living hope and an inheritance that cannot be lost and a salvation that is going to be revealed in the day of Christ's appearing. And so born again by the mercy of the Father through the resurrection of Jesus. And now Peter talks about some of the results of the new birth. He mentions three that I just said. Living hope, indestructible inheritance, and a secure salvation. Let's take a look at these in turn. Think about the first. Born anew to a living hope. The first thing we need to say here, if we're going to appreciate what what Peter is getting at, by hope... What do we often mean today? We, we are often speaking of, you know, a, a wishful desire, right? Or an, an aspiration. I sure hope my kids sleep through the night. I really do. Um, I hope I get that job. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That, that's how we use the word hope today, expressing a desire with a degree of uncertainty. We need to appreciate the fact that when the Bible speaks about hope, that is not at all what the Bible is speaking about. When the Bible speaks about Christian hope, it's talking about an assured certainty, which is grounded in the work of God and grounded in the promises of God found in Scripture. 
It is, if you like, if, if this is a helpful illustration. It's like possessing a certified check with your name written on it. Right? When, you, when you have the, the check, the certified check, your name on it, you do not yet fully possess what's indicated on the check, but it's as good as done, isn't it? It's secure. And the check is the guarantee in your hand. I, and I love, I love the way Peter describes this hope. Did you see it? Born anew to a living hope. Now, why does Peter speak about it in those terms? Because Peter understands that the ground of our Christian hope is none other than Jesus Christ, who has died, but who now lives forevermore. And sin and death have no claim on him. So we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And our hope cannot die. It cannot perish because Jesus Christ is alive. And death has no claim on him. I think by speaking of a living hope grounded in our living Savior, Peter, Peter is also implicitly at least warning us away from misplacing our hope in the Christian life or losing our hope in the Christian life. And there are some different ways that we can do that. I'll give you an example. Some of you may be here today and, and perhaps you're given over to the thought that if I could just be a better Christian, if I could just be a better Christian I wouldn't have the problems that I do right now in my marriage, with my kids, with my family, at your job, or wherever you have problems in your life. See, what's going on there is your hope is that if you could just do better, if you could just be a better Christian, things would get better for you. But friends, if that's where your hope is, you have a case of misplaced hope. It's in the wrong place. And others of us, may need to be reminded that the hope of glory, the living hope of which Peter speaks here, is something that Jesus has purchased for you. It's something he secured for you by his life and death and resurrection. It is the blood-bought purchase of the children of God. And, and, and it is possible, isn't it, that your sense of this assured confidence of things yet to come. Your sense of Christian hope is, is perhaps being obscured by pain and suffering and trials that you face right now. If that's where you are, I want to say rest assured that your future, dear brother and sister, does not depend on how you feel today. Your future does not depend on how you've perhaps been feeling for the last month for the last year, for the last several years for some of you. It depends entirely on what Jesus Christ has done for you and will one day do for you because you have been born anew to a living hope. And second, you've been born anew to an indestructible inheritance. Again, let's just remind ourselves to appreciate this in the context of Peter's audience Peter is likely writing to Christians who've been expelled from Rome, driven out, and an experience like that in the first century context would have 
understandably induced feelings of hopelessness and utter helplessness. They've lost everything. And now they're scattered in a foreign place. And they're also seen as outsiders on account of the fact that they confess Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is showing them. And here's what we need to appreciate and understand for ourselves. Peter is helping them to understand that whatever is lost in this life on account of following Jesus Christ is returned a hundredfold. (laughs) They have been born anew into the family of God, resulting in a new inheritance. And while we perhaps haven't had this experience of being disinherited, dispersed like these Christians, my friends, the deeper underlying principle still applies here, that anything lost in this life on account of following Jesus is, this isn't an exaggeration, is nothing compared to what is gained. Have a closer look at verse 4. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. One one commentary I read um, put it this way. I thought this was so helpful. It says, this means the Christian's inheritance is untouched by death, That's imperishable, unstained by evil, undefiled, and unimpaired by time, unfading. Now think about this, you know, think about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who had been uh, taught in the Old Testament scriptures. What's, What's going through their minds when they hear the word inheritance? Well, they're thinking of what was so often associated with an inheritance in the Old Testament, and that was a plot of land in in God's promised land. But the land of the Old Covenant was a perishable inheritance. It had been defiled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and others, and its former glory had long since faded Peter says, when you are born anew by the mercy of God the Father through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you receive an inheritance. Not like that old covenant inheritance that was a sign of what God intended for his people all along. But you receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice that there's something of the very character of God described in the inheritance of God's people. Do you notice that? That the inheritance is like God. And I actually think that's the point. You know, what is our inheritance? New creation, new heavens, and new earth, for sure. What does Jesus say? The meek shall inherit the earth. But there's certainly more to it than that. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the Lord himself is our inheritance. He gives himself wholly to us. He is our chosen portion and cup. He will be our great delight And joy, our dwelling place forever. And so you see, this is the desire of your father who chose you in eternity and caused you in time to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead 
to a living hope and an indestructible inheritance. Do you remember when Jesus taught um, in the Gospels how the Heavenly Father gives good gifts to his children? And he, he drew on the, the, the creaturely analogy of earthly fathers and said, you know, if you, you fathers, though evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will your good Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I think we can play on, on that analogy here and, and say, fathers, isn't, isn't there a deep instinct and desire in you, though you are a sinner? To leave an inheritance for your children. How much more, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is infinitely good and nothing but love and mercy for you, how much more will he leave you the very best inheritance? And he's done that. He's done that by giving us himself. He's done it through his son, who is called the heir of all things. And friends, in Jesus Christ, we are heirs of the world and heirs of God. So praise God. We can, in Martin Luther's words, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, because we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us. So born anew to a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and third, secure salvation. Take a look at verse 5 with me. Peter writes, To you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so not only is our inheritance being kept in heaven for us, but here we are on earth being kept by the power of God. That's what Peter is saying. <clears throat> We're being guarded. Actually, the word that he uses, it's a, it's a military word. We're being guarded, not, not like prisoners, but more like, more like royalty. You know, think about somebody like the President of the United States. Everywhere he goes, he's, he's surrounded, he's guarded by a detail of agents who are there to protect him. And Peter is saying, beloved in Christ, you are guarded, you are being guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed. God himself is your protection detail. Now, we need to slow down for a second and appreciate the paradoxical way Peter, Peter puts this. Think about this. It is, after all, faith in Christ that has put these Christians in jeopardy <laughs> with respect to the world around them. But simultaneously, it is that very faith by which they receive what's needed from God to keep going, to stand firm in God's grace. In the very next verse, Peter will talk about trials that we'll think about more next week. But let me say today that the word there for trials is actually the same exact word that we find in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Temptation, it's the same word that's translated trials here in 1 Peter. And remember, as I said just a second ago, 
Peter's stated purpose in this letter is to tell these Christians about the grace of God so that they can stand firm in the grace of God in the face of trials. But we need to appreciate this. Trials provoked by a Christian's faith are implicitly or can be implicitly a temptation to renounce that faith. See, no Christian in their right mind seeks after the testing of his or her faith. Nor does God set up, you know, uh, uh, trials like an obstacle course or some sort of entrance exam. But Christians have known from the beginning that no genuine faith will ever exist without trials in this life. Why is that? Well, because of the new commitments and values that come as a result of faith in Jesus, there are now inherent, unavoidable tensions and conflicts for the Christian living in this world. But, you see what Peter's saying? The faith that at once alienates us in some sense from society is the same faith by which we receive the resources from God to endure that alienation. That's what Peter is saying here. And so brothers and sisters, appreciate what this means for you. That through faith, you are being guarded by God's power until you are ushered into a salvation that is to be revealed in the last time, on the day of Christ's appearing. It's ready, Peter uses that word, because the past events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension have already secured it, have already achieved it. And it will be revealed at the last time when Christ returns. See, we've been saved from sin's guilt, And the dominion of sin has been shattered in our lives, but one day Jesus is going to return and we are going to all together be delivered from the presence of sin and the effects of sin on God's good creation. I I think Peter's teaching here is, is a helpful corrective to popular thought. That at death, we, we, you know, we go to heaven to receive our full and final reward. Now, of course, it's true that as Christians, if we die before Christ returns, as Paul says, death is gain. Why? Because we go into the presence of the Lord. And we are free from sin. But that is not our full and final state of salvation, is it? Peter presents salvation as being fully realized at the final judgment When Jesus Christ is revealed. And it will mean for God's people. Total deliverance. From this state of existence. As foreigners in a world hostile to God. Into a place of existence where our hope is fully realized. Our inheritance is enjoyed. And we will be saved to the uttermost. And so think about the privileges Peter describes and how it's meant to shape our lives in the here and now. He's saying, God is the guarantee of your hope. He is himself the substance of your inheritance. And he is the one who by his power is keeping you until the day of salvation. And as we finish today, just ask them, okay, so what what is Peter teaching us to do. We draw a lot of things. Let me just highlight two things this morning. 
Certainly, at the very least, Peter is invoking us to praise. Isn't he? He is inviting us to join in the doxology of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To bless God with the praise of our lips because he has saved us in this way. So dear friends, let me say, if if your heart is dull to the worship of God, something is not functioning correctly. Something's not right because the gospel makes us want to sing, blessed be God. This is what the gospel is intended to produce. The praise of God's people, it produces worshipers. We are born again so that we can join with that great anthem existing on earth and existing in heaven that sings with one unified voice, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to such a living hope. See, the second thing, then, that I think we're learning to see uh, is we're, we're learning to see trials, and we're going to come back to this next week and get into it in more detail. But I think Peter is wanting us to learn to see trials in the Christian life from a different vantage point. From a different perspective. Peter writes to Christians who again from a this worldly perspective have every human reason to be hopeless. To despair. They've been disinherited. They're grieved by all kinds of sore trials. They're strangers in the eyes of the world living on the margins of society. But Peter is teaching them instead to see their experience in the light of the reality of the living hope to which they have been reborn. And that's something I think we need to learn too. That you know, God's estimation of us is not based upon what people have to say about you. God's estimation of you is not to be determined by the quality of your life circumstances. God's estimation and love for his people is not contingent upon how they fare in this world. It is based instead on what God says about us according to the gospel. He has so loved us that he chose us and caused us to be born again to a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and a salvation that cannot be lost. You see, our Father, he he therefore, he wants you and me to live in this world where there will be trials with the sure knowledge that this is who we now are by the mercy of God, children of God, born anew through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been born anew to a hope that cannot die, an inheritance that cannot be lost, and a secure salvation that is ready to be revealed on the day of Christ's appearing. And so may God give each of us the grace to, to live with, with this understanding as his children born anew into God's family with a living hope, possessing the very best inheritance imaginable and a secure salvation that will be revealed when we see Jesus face to face. And so we cry out, do we not, as God's people, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come.
Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, blessing your name for causing us to be born again through the resurrection of your Son, for giving us this living hope and this indestructible inheritance and for blessing us with so great a salvation. May we therefore live lives of praise to you and may you teach us more and more to see our experience in this world in the light through the lens of what you say about us, your people. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.